Hello, it's Vikas Porta, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. And of course, uh, in this session, we're going to be challenged to think about our very fast-changing world and the question, will schools survive the fourth industrial revolution? Now, you've got a great panel here to talk to you about that, um, and I'll introduce them just very briefly. On my left, I've got Armand Dusa who is, of course, one of the um, prior finalists for the Teacher Prize too, and we'll hear more from Armand in a second. Uh, so Young Kang, uh, founder and CEO of Nobi. On my right, Professor Martin Mills, my colleague at the Institute of Education and director of the Centre for Teachers and Teaching Research. And at the end, Shazir, who is a student and providing us with the student voice today. So um, in a second, I'll ask them to very briefly uh, say a little bit about what they do to give you the context. Um, but just to uh, think a, t a tiny bit about the topic to start with. Now, we hear all the time, don't we, whether it's scare stories or whether it's the great uh, utopian nirvana of the fourth industrial revolution. You'll find that I'm a little bit of a skeptic on this. Uh, so I hope that I'll be able to provide some grit in the oyster in our debate today. But we're also going to try to cast the debate a little bit wider than usual, thinking about what the role of education and school institutions is as we progress through this rapidly changing century, um, and really whether the uh, institution that we're familiar with has a place here at all. So, without further ado, I'm going to start with Shazir to introduce yourself, if you will, for a second. Yeah, sure. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Shazir Kashif. I am a year 12 student here in Dubai, studying at Dumbs Wellington. Uh, I'm head girl there. I'm originally from Pakistan, but I've been living in Dubai for the last four years, and I'm very excited to be on this panel alongside these amazing people today. Thank you so much. And Martin. Yeah, and I, as Becky said, I work at the Institute of Education UCL. Um, I have come recently from Australia where I was working at the University of Queensland as head of school and um, I've moved back to the UK where I was originally from. Um, I, my work is around um, teachers work and with young people who have struggled with schooling. So young. Hi, um, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I'm the founder of Nobi. I actually started my career as a teacher, teaching middle school students about 20 years ago in Japan. And then I think I've come full circle 20 years later to now creating a mobile learning experience solution to really help scale a very, very powerful classroom experience um, using technology in a much, much broader way. So I'm really excited to be here to talk about the future of education, of schooling, of teaching, as well as learning for the 21st century to remain relevant. And uh, I'm a jack of all trade, master of none is pretty much the way to say it. Uh, I've got a background in sales and marketing with the Forbes 500 company and then left that to go back into the classroom. Uh, I teach middle school and high school, I'm now in the high school realm and I've written a couple of books on teaching in the fourth industrial revolution and the teaching pedagogy for today's world. Now, Armand, you've already touched, and in, in describing the subject of your book, you've really set us off well, um, thinking about, you know, will we need different pedagogy uh, as we progress through the 21st century? Maybe you could start us off with that. Uh, yeah, to answer that question, it, it, it's a bit hard, because I, I think it's very nuanced. It depends on where you are in the world. Uh, and, and it really comes to what education is for in whatever country you are in. And, and if it's for what I believe in is that every child flourish no matter what. So if it's healthy minds, jobs, family, you name it, then yes, I, I think that we are going to see a major pivot. Uh, particularly where 
we're going to need to look at what are great pedagogical approaches for that community, right? And that community, I'm talking about specific schools and even specific classrooms, depending on how your system's set up. So where I'm from, we have an, an English system that has late immersion, immersion in English. Well, depending on which classroom there, it changes. The pedagogy needs to change to be able to, to reach that child, and particularly if we're looking at personalization. So, I think it will pivot, uh, but it's going to be different everywhere, and I don't necessarily see one massive scalable model that's going to work, but there may be tools that are scalable across the hmm. board. Interesting. Okay, so context is all important. And before we carry on, I'm going to turn to every one of the panel and ask you to answer in turn, do you feel that we are going to see radical change to our schools or not? So young. Um, interesting. So I think first the definition of school is probably something that is already being disrupted. So what is the classroom experience and where does learning take place? So I think that the concept of school is already expanding. So the disruption has already started to take place. Classroom and learning is not just limited to this classroom experience anymore. We're able to learn anytime and anywhere. So as we think about that concept, then the role of the teacher also is evolving beyond the idea because content is so accessible. It's no longer about content delivery and sharing knowledge. Students are fast. They'll go to Google and correct you if you're wrong and you give the wrong information, right? And so I think then the role of the educator that needs to evolve to think about facilitation and how do we create powerful experiential learning experiences. And so I think the future of schools, the future roles and then even the role of the student is also going to evolve from being a passive receiver of information where teacher knows all and I take notes to a much more participatory experience where they're actually learning how to think, which is at the core of the, 21st, uh, of the fourth industrial revolution and 21st century skills. So Young, thank you. And Martin? Um, I think schools need to be disrupted. Um, I think, so most of my work has been with young people who have been excluded from school, interviews with them and with teachers who work with those young people in alternative provision or in some kind of alternative schools. And the very fact that you have young people who have been excluded from schools seems to me an indication that schools aren't working for them. And I think we have to ask, if our school system is not working well for the most marginalised young people, then something needs to change in that system. What's ironic is when you talk to the teachers who work with these young people, many of those teachers say they left the mainstream school system because it wasn't working for them, mm -hmm. and that they really wanted to work with young people who struggled with schooling, and that therefore they were working in alternative provi provisions. So in short, yes, I think the schools need to be disrupted to be something else. In terms of technology, I think, technolo like I, I think we are in a much fast-paced world now, and, and globalisation exists. We're, we're here as an evidence of globalisation as, as are refugees. But technology, I think, has always made a big difference. The printing press and the Reformation, mm -hmm. the TV and, world, and the Vietnam War, significant resistance in countries like Australia and the US as a result of that technology. So I think technologies always change the world, but it's how we use those technologies. So I'm a little sceptical of Fourth Industrial Revolution, but we can come back to that. Yeah. yeah, so as a student, I can already see that radical changes being introduced to schools. Already your learning is um, very independent based. Um, I think in the future, besides the fourth industrial revolution, like Warren said, um, it's much more, it's getting increasingly important for students to have soft skills like critical thinking and independence rather than just. Um, the rote learning methods that we've been having for a couple hundred, a hundred years and just taking in content and assimilating it. But it's more about um, the skills that they take with them once, they, once they've taken that content in. And so I do think that at an exponential rate, um, the school systems that we know today will be disrupted. But I think it's gonna be gradual rather than something that immediately radicalizes the entire system that we know today. Um, because the truth of the, the matter is that even though those skills are getting increasingly important, our schools are really dependent upon uh, their grading systems, standardized testing, um, quantifying intelligence, because despite what we do in classrooms, when we move outside of our classrooms uh, and enter the practical world, 
what the rest of the world sees of us is our reports. So even though we've had that experience in our mind, we've actually uh, learned those things that's not really represented in what uh, documentation we leave when we get out of our school systems. So I think to fit the fourth industrial revolution, which is really all about independence and independent change, school systems need to be disrupted. Thank you. So <laughs> I said that um, I'd provide a bit of challenge. Now, in the um, English education system at the moment, we have um, a, a movement for strong knowledge content in education. I myself have argued that schools should be for teaching the knowledge that kids can't pick up elsewhere outside the classroom, uh, whether online or anywhere else. I've talked about the various skills that my sons learn while computer gaming, but they ain't ever gonna learn about algebra online. Um, and that this is what school, the, the role of the schools is and will be. We also, of course, have a movement in cognitive psychology around direct instruction, which again is very premised on the notion of the expert teacher uh, with the class sitting uh, receptive and listening. So although um, in England we have moved very far away from the, the model of rote learning, there's almost a sort of evidence-based uh, movement uh, back in that direction. So I might contest and say certainly we've seen the failures with a lot of the kind of Silicon Valley uh, touchy-feely learning models, uh, you know, reliant on IT but not a great deal of teacher knowledge. Maybe schools aren't going to change very much at all. Challenge me back. Uh, I can start. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you're completely wrong and I don't think you're completely right. Uh, and from my knowledge of the English system, I think a lot of that's linked up to what they want to assess from Ofsted's perspective. That's just my own personal opinion on that. And what you can assess is the lowest hanging fruit, uh, which is content knowledge. So if that's the case, then I think that's going in the wrong direction. So if you're looking at competencies, and you're completely right, critical thinking, and you're completely right as well in terms of that. If you're looking at critical thinking and the scaffolding for critical thinking, you can do it through algebra. How does that transfer from algebra to other content? That's, that's the trick that if, it seems like we don't understand how to do that yet. So if, I, if I'm very good at critical thinking in humanities, but I might not be able to transfer that over to physics, and then I, I can't do it in physics, but there seems to be a, a, a link there that us as teachers, we're not sure how to make that happen. So. In terms of will it pivot, I, I really do think that it needs to because if we're going to have a holistic approach and touch on these aspects of it, uh, then yeah, the content is important as well, right? So that brings me back to technology integration. Technology integration needs to enhance great pedagogical practice. And again, it's gonna be nuanced depending on where it is, but in a holistic learning situation. So if I take, we use passion projects in humanities. So we're trying to develop an innovative society in Canada because we need to. We don't have enough people, mind you, with migration, we probably will down the line, but we need to have an innovative society. So how do I, how do I build that type of innovation or, or develop that type of innovation in child? Well, the way I do it in humanities is that I build a project that has three components that they need to prototype three times and get feedback from multiple different people before they actually have a final, a final project to present. And within that, I can work one on resiliency. So you're getting critical feedback. How, how do you take that in? How, how do you address whatever they said? Are you gonna take everything in and just put it on paper or create something new and then you're gonna go forward? Not really assessing what they're saying and maybe leaving some behind. Uh, who are you communicating to? And we're looking at all those aspects of competencies throughout a semester-long project that does also develop resiliency, entrepreneurship, design thinking, and so on and so forth. Thank you. 
thank you very much. So young. Sure yeah, can. no, I, I, was, I was actually just, you know, kind of thinking about what you're saying. So, I mean, there are amazing models, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which are multidisciplinary in terms of even psychology with music, dance with, uh, with mathematics. Um, School of the Arts, for example, in Singapore does an amazing intentional mm -hmm. job of doing multidisciplinary um, studies. So I think that the idea, so it, there are definitely great models out there that are doing it extremely well. Kind of going back to, I think, what you're saying in terms of competencies, there's also from the corporate, because I come from the corporate learning space, um, we work with uh, academic institutions and corporate academies to train academics, but also students. So, but we're coming more from that angle. So in the, in the corporate space, we only care about skills. So don't care about your assessment scores. And when you're looking for a job, no one asks you what your GPA is, like very rarely. What they're looking for is, can you do the job the moment I hire you? And so your critical thinking, your cre I, call them, I call the 21st century skills the four Cs because you know, our minds can't process so much. We need bite-sized stuff, right? So it's uh, critical thinking, creativity, communication, and collaboration skills. So one of the things that we're doing now is we're looking at mapping the jobs that are needed. Let's say it's a data analyst role, then what are the technical, the soft skills, and the industry-relevant skills? Let's say you want to do data analyst role in financial services, and then t tying that back then to then what is the content and the courseware and the education that you need to develop the skills and that could be math, it could be any skills, right? And any content to map that back. And then doing behavioral based assessments on whether the person acquired the skills. So I think there's been a lot of innovation that's moved beyond just the content memorization. And, and I think there is a little bit of a fallacy when we talk about even the test uh, assessing knowledge like I, I, got, I could pass many exams when I was a kid. You asked me two weeks later if I remember anything that I learned, like I don't, right? So I was very good at short-term memory and knowledge and like memorization. So the skill that it was actually testing for me was short-term memory. I have a great short-term memory. But if you, if you ask if you're actually learning, so there, I think we, the whole assessment conversation, you're absolutely right. We have to totally evolve that to assessing skills, mindsets, behaviors, and there's a lot of stuff we're doing around even sales behaviors, or whether it's an actually like how people have conversations or competencies. And so I think there's an opportunity, if you think cross-disciplinary, to take what's happening in the corporate and the business world, and then think about what's happening in education, mm -hmm. and create much tighter linkages between the two. Thank you very much. You mentioned uh, 21st century skills, and I shall come back to you on that in a second. Um, but first of all, you've all uh, there's been various allusions as well to personalization of learning. Martin, obviously, you started by talking about um, excluded pupils. In a comprehensive state system, which I know you support yep. in your writing, yep. can a comprehensive system ever cater for every child? I think it can, and, and I think one of the problems has been, and it's, um, I think it's Tyak and Cuban, talked about the grammar of schooling and how it's been difficult to shift the grammar of schooling. And I think that has to be shifted in order to make schools accessible, to, to make them fully comprehensive, which is why I think schools need to change in some ways to be comprehensive. Uh, can I just pick up on a point from, from So Young? So one of my concerns about it is, is, and Armand referred to it, is the purposes of schooling. The purposes of schooling go beyond workplaces, mm -hmm. and, we, and I think that content is really important of a particular kind for young people. I, as indicated earlier, I lived in Australia for a very, very long time. The Wiradji people in um, New South, what's now New South Wales have an expression which says, acquiring the wisdom to respectfully live well in a world worth living in. And I think that that, to me, seems to be a really important aspect of education, to enable young people to live well in a world worth living in. So I would hope that, to some extent, those young people on the streets, of, uh, on strike in relation to climate change, are a product mm -hmm. of fantastic social science teachers yep. who've taught them about yep. um, non-violent resistance, and fantastic science teachers that have given them the knowledge to think about climate change. So I think without that knowledge, those young people wouldn't be taking those, those actions. Yeah. Shazelle, would you agree? Yeah, I, I do. I, <laughs> you know, um, as a student, like, I can kind of understand the importance of a niche between, like you said, social sciences and sciences as well. And what Armand was saying about how using that content 
as an instrument to instill those soft skills in the students that are going on to take on the world tomorrow. So for me, yeah, uh, I completely agree, actually. So for <laughs> once, like, so surprised. my inner debater is like kind of really snubbed out. Like, why aren't you debating? No, I'm good with this. And, and just, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about the technology again. Do mm. you see um, ed tech as potentially supporting state systems to do better with their education? Uh, yes. I, I and I want to. Yesterday there was a conversation in terms of it almost seemed like I was tech integration against it, and I'm not. I, I use a lot of technology in my classroom, but it's the technology that, that I need to use to enhance what I'm doing. And uh, I'll take the, the app competition this morning. The, 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 the DOS app, the one that's the early childhood literacy, or the early childhood activities, that's transferable across the world. So we have, in New Brunswick in Canada, where I'm from, uh, we have a social economic situation where about, I'd say about 40% of the people are, are under the, not under the, uh, under the poverty level, mm -hmm. uh, which again, it's Western Hemisphere linked, so they, they have houses and so on, but uh, oftentimes dependent issues, or they're having their child extremely young, not sure how to do it, have uh, uh, dropped out of school, so in that situation, I thought that was brilliant because it's now creating a community where the teacher can now relate with any parent and then have a discussion about, okay, your child's coming in with what? And then building that greater community because right, right now one of the biggest fears in education, is, well, in education as a teacher is the other side, <coughs> right? Because you got the lawnmower parents, the helicopter parents and everything else, right? So, you never know what's going to come at you in a phone call or an email or what's going to happen. But the truth is you need to build that community. So tech integration, there's a really cool platform called uh, Community Share out of Tucson, Arizona. And that teacher, what he realized was that he was the center of bringing everything into his school. And the moment he left, the community left with him. So he realized, uh oh, this is not good because now the community is not there anymore and we're not so it was an issue. So he created a platform where teachers could go out and see what was in the community available. And basically, it's like a dating site, really. And you could go see, oh, he's got an expertise in engineering and soldering. I got a physics project that I'm going to create lights and partner up with the Dominican Republic to look at possibly having light so that they can study past night because they struggle to have light at night. So I'm going to bring in that expert on my time as a teacher and say, hey, why don't you come in and help the kids, teach them the technicalities of soldering so I can do the 3D printing, the physics aspect of it, and then we have the SDGs, you're trying international relations, there's a whole concept to that. But that's where technology integration to me is really important. But so far it's been top down mostly, and usually in an assessment model, and it's usually not useful for every single subject, and then you end up with a situation where I'm wasting my time trying to figure out what this works, and it's not actually helping my situation, mm -hmm. right? Thank you. I suppose that uh, what I'm thinking is that is there an argument that actually with, it's almost like Ivan Illich's uh, model realized mm. through, te through technology and, and the online interface, is this actually supportive potentially of state pub public schooling uh, developing, giving, enriching, uh, giving that extra personalization and flexibility. Um, often there have been arguments that, you know, we're seeing a sort of mass diversification of schooling, the fragmentation of the schooling system. But am I right to understand, Armand, that you are arguing that actually uh, Te technology can support the exi existing public school systems? Yeah, it's, and one, I'm a big public education, I'm a big public education believer, particularly when we're talking fourth industrial revolution, because if you look at the first industrial revolution, public education gets formed, raises up and so on, I'm not going to get into the details, but in terms of technology, yeah, I'm a firm believer it is, but it's how you use it, why it comes in, and is it done ethically? Because right now, most digital policies across, across every country, really, is not done for education. It's done for healthcare and finance and government, protecting whatever data it is. 
So most teachers in the classroom are actually probably breaking digital policies <laughs> because they're pushing the boundaries. So for us, take Google Education, right? If I use it, that software is based in the US. Done, should be fired, right? Because I'm, I'm, breaking, I'm breaking the rules, really. But it's, it's where you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I protect their data? And I know there's different ways that you can do it with blockchain and so on, but that's not my expertise. So can I reach out to somebody and say, okay, how do I do this? And then bring back that knowledge and then from there, enhance it. And I'm gonna take your example. You, I know you wanna go into international relations <laughs> and you're probably gonna be wicked at it, I'm sure. Uh, but technology can enhance that, right? I can connect her to people from all over the world using Skype, world experts that can help her, or the little girl, uh, no little girl, she's not a little girl, the 16-year-old Greta who's doing amazing things with the climate change. Well, why don't you connect her with climate experts and help her continue on her movement or talk about uh, branding of the movement to help continue on to do a policy decision or to be able to present yourself in a setting and decide, okay, how do you communicate that, that audience versus communicating to that audience, which is two different things, right? So, yeah, I do think so. Thank you, and so young, I know you've been waiting to come in. No, I, I actually, maybe I'll share a slightly different perspective on this whole technology and talk about the teachers. So I'll share an example. So, um, so in Singapore, um, I'm American, but I live in Singapore and San Francisco, so I'll use the Singapore example. But I think one of the top polytechnics in Singapore um, is, is a school called Neon Polytechnic. They have like 15,000 students, and, um, and they were experimenting with technology. And I think one of the biggest challenges they were facing was how do you change the mindsets of teachers to basically adopt technology? And uh, I understand this is a common challenge among universities and academic institutions um, and ministers of education. And so instead of really focusing on the students, actually the focus was on the educator. And it was actually around empowering the teachers to be able to try um, using technology to create, in this case, a mobile microlearning course. So what happened was they had 50 teachers come together and collaborate in two weeks to create four, four courses for their graduating polytechnic students. So they had two weeks, 15,000 students about to graduate, 50 teachers in a classroom like this get together and all have to create a mobile microlearning course. And as a result of that, I think what was very interesting is when I spoke to the, the principal, the deputy principal, and I said, so how do you think it went? And uh, what do you think the impact was? And they said, we, the technology, we used it to change the mindsets and expand and develop actually 21st century skills for the educator. In the process of actually creating it, they had to collaborate, they had to have very sharp critical thinking skills because they're used to doing six 12-week curriculum design. To do things in a mobile micro-learning, they have to be super sharp and just focus on the key points. They had to learn creativity to be able to storyboard because now it's like this, this little tiny, they only had this much real estate. So they had to be really creative to engage the students, otherwise they'll get bored and they won't engage. So it was a very interesting exercise in how for the educator, and I think by empowering the educator and having them be really core to technology adoption, I think is a much more powerful way than doing this whole top-down thing as well. That's really interesting. Thank you. Uh, would you, what, do you? Do you think that uh, teachers are able to do this, ready to do this? Yeah, so I think it, um, it differs according to the demographic of what school you're looking at, what public education system you're looking at. Uh, in the U.S., maybe in the, in the North American education system, the obstacles that are present to fully integrate technology into classrooms, training teachers, training students, may be different to what maybe like an Asian public education system may have to face. Um, speaking as a Pakistani, our public education system, like you have a lot of hope in the public education system, but uh, personally speaking, in, in the demographics of my country, I don't really have that much faith in it. And if I were to think that technology integration would make it better, um, I, don't, I don't think so, because for a lot of public education systems within the third world, if you're looking at specifically, uh, they're really strongly linked and, and they correspond strongly to the cultural fabric, fabric of that region. Mm -hmm. And lots of the teachers come in with that cultural mindset, uh, traditionally minded, and 
they need an entire uprooting of the values that they've come into teaching with and really need to reskill themselves to be able to bring all that technology. So if we're talking about um, technology improving public education systems worldwide, I think it's going to take a long time to get um, these systems aligned to a point where all of them are working on the same productivity um, because the amount of training that the teachers in each of those systems require differs and uh, we really need to be specific in that sense so it's quite, quite nuanced, like you said. Yeah, so I think you're, there's two things there, Pecky, if I just want to jump in quickly. Singapore is a particular model, particularly when it comes to professional development. They have three different pathways and they invest in the professional development. You talked about two weeks. Most systems around the world have a day to learn whatever it is to bring in the classroom. So that's, that's my pushback on that. They actually invest in professional development and R&D in a different way than most systems. To, to go back to what you said, in terms of uh, in the developing world, rural education is a big issue, a massive issue. So in terms of technology integration, it can help if you have maybe a, a teacher lecturer that's an expert in the content knowledge and developing the programs, but still culturally uh, understands the situation from the region, but can reach out to different regions. And, and, and we see that in Brazil, actually, with uh, I think it's Nave schools, they call them, where it now enhances the rural education aspects, which, which, is a, which is a massive issue around the world, because if you look at immigration, for the most part, go into the big cities, that's where most of the people are more in, uh, will embrace immigration. And if you look at where the fear of more immigration around the world is happening is more in the rural areas. And, and that fear is also affecting governments where it's polarizing the pol politics. And then all of a sudden you have these situations where, uh-oh, we're, we're in trouble a bit all over the place. So I think it does enhance it as well. And that's really important to bring context back yeah. in again. Yeah. I think that's really key. <coughs> Martin, did you want to feed back Look, on any of these? I, I suppose while people were talking, I was thinking of some of the teachers and students I know in a school in, in West London that was set up after a series of, um, of youth riots in the early 90s. And it, it has youth workers, teachers, family workers, a whole range of people it, that work to ensure that a young person comes to school. Many of those 13, 14 year olds don't have homes, don't know where they're gonna sleep that night, could be arrested any time by, um, by, the, by the police for um, various criminal activities. They know if they're arrested, there's someone in the school to ring. If there's some problem at their, their home, the family member has a, a counselor to ring in terms of helping them fill out forms. Those kids say the only reason they're in school is because that school exists. No other school wanted them, they couldn't cope at any other school. And I think for many of those young people, like the, the world you're talking about is such a, a million miles from them. And I think we, you know, the school does try to provide them with those things, but the way in which the school has changed is that it's, you know, like I heard somebody at one of these schools say, you know, we, the only reason we're a school is for the funding. We don't want, and he said, I, we don't want to be a bloody school. You know, we want to be something else, mm -hmm. you know, that is a kind of learning environment. It's a place that cares about young people, the families and the communities. And that's how we disrupt the grammar of schooling. So there's something here, isn't there, yeah. about catering for the needs of individual mm. students, mm. hard-to-reach students, mm. if you like, and then there's something about catering for the needs of hard-to-reach schools. Yeah. We've mentioned rural, mm. uh, distance learning and so forth, and yet, in both cases, these are often both the schools and the kids least equipped, aren't mm. they, uh, technologically? So there's a sort mm. of double challenge there. Now, before we uh, put, uh, ask the audience for their questions so, and so on, I must, I've been waiting to challenge the 21st century skills narrative. I'm going to contest that, well, we, we all listened to Stephen Pinker this morning, didn't we, talking about the Renaissance, uh, the Enlightenment, and what science has given us, uh, and, and the sort of human progress since the 18th century. My hypothesis is that 21st century skills are actually exactly the same as first century skills, aren't they? Uh, you want to challenge me back? Uh, I actually agree with you. <laughs> uh, but but where, where, where I might uh, add something to it is that the accountability now to showcase that we are doing it versus before it might, have been, might not have been necessarily with intent. But, but we would these, hit it. Yeah, are these skills that can act to or should act 
actively be taught or are they skills that actually we pick up by our common human interaction, you know, teamwork, uh, leadership, creativity so, that I would argue is innate to humans and so forth. So I think collaboration is is not necessarily innate, right? There's a communication. Not innate as, in humanity. Uh, no, not necessarily. Sociologists uh, might disagree. We'll yeah. bring Martin <laughs> in a minute. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if it, especially in today's world, where you can walk around with earphones on and not speak to anybody and do whatever you want, <laughs> maybe maybe we need to teach it a bit more with intent. That's that's where I'm going with this. Uh, in terms of uh, developing it, there's multiple ways you can develop it, and and I really do not think we should assess competencies or social emotional learning. I think that is a dangerous slope to go on. Uh, and, and, but I do believe that you, you can do it a bit more intentionally and have the teacher when he's designing his the classroom culture that he wants or for her. the people. Yeah, or her, sorry. Um, yeah, or her. Yes, sorry. my bad. Uh, uh, but when you're designing that culture, or when she's designing that culture, and when you're designing for the learning outcomes that you want to meet, or when you're looking at, okay, this kid struggles really with communicating with others, it needs to be enhanced a bit, he, need, he or she needs to have a voice, uh, how am I going to create that situation, right? So I, I think we need to do it a, a bit more with intent, particularly as we're progressing from not just direct instruction, but we're also looking at facilitating. Well, while you're facilitating, there, there are aspects of it that you can teach. So, and they might not get it at home anymore because those soft skills, you, a lot of them you got at home. Right? A lot of them, you got them at home and being able to have free play time and you, know, you, you create rules for whatever game you were playing and then you know, the rules didn't work, you changed the rules and then you'd see where it goes. Well, now it's so, everybody's doing, oh, at this time you're gonna do this, 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 this. They don't have that at time anymore. Thank you. Yeah. Martin, would you agree I, with that? Look, to, to some extent I do. I think we live in a very individualised society mm -hmm. and I think that that does need to be challenged and that collaboration and cooperation is a much better way of our social organising. Um, so so I, I, you know, I'm very supportive of that. But I, the, the point you said about social and emotional um, capabilities, I was thinking of Lisa Delpit's book, Other People's Children, where she talks about the fact that some very, very clever people have done some pretty horrific things. You know, engineers in the Nazi concentration camps, somebody out there probably at the moment is designing some kind of chemical weapon. You know, a very, so we do have to think about our education system in terms of a kind of moral dimension yeah. to that education and a more humane education system. So there's system. an argument developing here that this is actually about values education, yeah. Yeah. right? So Young, would you agree? Yeah, no, I was saying, just kind of going back and kind of connecting the first, you know, kind of industrial revolution in here. I think what's happened is we, d we did start off with an education system that was actually in terms of Socratic method, teaching people how to think, and education was actually about learning. Mm. So I don't think that's new. I don't think that pedagogical, like the core pedagogy or andragogy, which is for adult learning, that actually I don't think has changed. I think that the way that we're actually living that out has changed. And what has happened is along the way, school became less about teaching people how to think, which is why we have to unlearn the stuff that <laughs> happened um, recently to go then go back to that. So that's why I do think it's important to talk about 21st century skills because it's not, it's not the norm, it should have been the norm. It was meant to be the norm. <laughs> Humans, children are creative, but then along the way the research is astounding that children start off creative and by the time they're 20, you know, or 30, okay. it's kind of beaten out of them. So, so the <laughs> schools have tested, uh, are basically uh, doing a disservice to education and so, uh, so then you have to almost go back, right, in terms of back to humanizing the educational system. And humanizing, I think, is a much bigger thing, which is going back to, I think, what Martin is saying, that humanizing is actually about not just the soft skills, but really at the core of it, the, the values, mm -hmm. the identity, the purpose. And if education was really meant to be about kind of helping develop human beings, at the very, very core, then what does it mean to be human? Mm -hmm. And what are the things we need to know to become human? And then the technology, the classroom, the facility, the school are all, I think all, are tools to actually help develop the human. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, speaking about humanizing the education system and the values that students should have when they're 
studying in a really technologically integrated system. So something I feel really, really strongly about. So when I go into class, and my school's um, really big on integrating technology into every aspect of our learning, whether it's Microsoft Teams, OneNote, it just, it's very blended. Um, but sometimes things get to a little forced. If I'll say, if we're talking about a, a very small number of schools around the world that are uber technologically advanced. But uh, if we're looking at the generation of learners that are coming out of those schools, what we're seeing is that even though they're innovative and they're critical thinkers, they've gotten those collaboration skills and everything that we were talking about uh, for the past couple minutes, they're quite apathetic to their contributions and to their use of technology. When I walk into class and our teacher tells us to do something that's technological based, even though maybe a couple years ago was more traditional or paper based or whatever it was before, and I ask her why, and she says the world is the future is technology, and the future is AI, and the future is this. And so we're fed that, um, this aphorism it's become, and, and we're fed that, and, and we take it in, and what we're seeing is that we're no longer inculcating in students the, that idea of questioning the technology they're using as well. So we're taking all of this in, and what we're seeing is that a couple of years down the line, we're going down a trajectory of superhumanity, AI taking over, the plot of iRobot unravels is Will Smith, you know. Yeah, so all of that, we can see that happening. So even though, like when we're talking about these soft skills and how they've always been there, they've always been a part of human nature, and we were just teaching with more intent now, we've, we've gone from being ignorant of being ignorant of those skills to being aware of being aware of those skills. And the irony is that we're not, we've, that moral compass, that moral rectitude is, is, is absent there. Mm -hmm. um, we need to be able to question the things that we learn, but we also need to be questioning the tools that we use to learn yeah. and have that accountability within ourselves. So um, I, I don't see that in my friends when they, when they use an online source or when they use anything uh, te technological. Um, and I ask them why, that they don't really have an answer because it's become a norm in the schools that have really integrated uh, in the 21st century. So if you look at the fourth industrial revolution, it is all about independent thought, individualism, but the irony is that that individualism is being lost because of how apathetic we are to our own humanity. It's like, I think the future of education is, and the future of the world is not AI or technology, but the persistence of our humanity and our values in spite of AI and technology, and, and just to find that niche there. So that's something that schools really need to integrate. Um, yeah. Well, let's hope you're right. Absolutely. <laughs> right. I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, that's been a really wide-ranging conversation. And it seems that we are arguing really for the continued role of schools, albeit uh, technologically supported to better deliver excellence and personalized learning excellence. Um, we've had discussions about um, pedagogy and the importance of pedagogy and discussions about the importance of values. And um, so it really does sound as though schools of whatever sort still have a very strong role to play. And I'd really like to hear now from you, the audience. I'm sure you have questions for our different panel members. If you, can if you have a question, raise your hand, say who you are and who your question is from. So we've got a question at the back here. That's Ruben. Hello, um, my name is Ruben. I'm from the UK. Um, I work for Teach First um, there. It's a fascinating, fascinating discussion. I'd be really interested from members of the panel, um, we've talked a lot about critical thinking, and, and I'm interested to know what, what are we thinking critically about? And do we, not need, do we not need a level of knowledge and of understanding? to then think critically. I think it's actually coming back to, to the point that you ended on about the questioning of technology. But actually, I think the same could be said for a number of things. And I'd, I'd love to know, what are we thinking critically about? So we're going to ask Sue Young to answer the question. And then sure. Um, it's a great question. And I 100% agree with your question. And if I kind of go more broadly, right, and, um, and not to oversimplify, but if I take, say, transformative, there's educators in this room. So if I take transformative learning theory, by Jack Mesereau, and I just simplify that, right, just for the sake of it. It's really the idea of learning something, which is having a base of knowledge 
then taking whatever that knowledge is, then thinking about it. What does it mean to me? Is it relevant? Is it not relevant? Do I make sense of it? Why is it relevant? Why am I even learning it? Then applying that knowledge, assuming that I take something from that, and then sharing it in a community setting, in a group, so there's debate, discussion, dialogue, which is kind of what we're doing right now. And so if you take any piece of content, I think taking an approach which is really based on how humans learn actually, which is, I think, then applying that across the board, whether we're learning chemistry, I'm looking at that periodic table, whether it's chemistry or geography or pol political science, I think it's actually having the discipline of not just stopping at the knowledge and the learned parts of the experience. And so I think what worries me sometimes is that you have tons of content which is in the learn category, which I call, call content. And then we stop and we say that's learning. But actually it's the think, apply, share part that is the true learning part. It's truly where the acquisition happens, where the critical thinking skills are developed. And so, but you do need knowledge about something or some things. And I think the acquisition of knowledge is absolutely critical and it's foundational. It's even formed good opinions. Oh, so young. Martin, did you want to come in? Yeah, look, so, so if I'd been sitting in the audience, that might have been the question I would have asked. Um, so, I think I, so I think it's a very good question. Um, so look, I, I do think that there are disciplinary knowledges that, that young people have to learn. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are, and, and there's interesting ways in which they can do that. Sometimes it's where disciplines kind of meet and you look at you know, interdisciplinary studies. I think I was at a wonderful session before I came to this one where there were some musicians talking like, let's not say, let's not ask how do we play music, but why do we play music? Mm -hmm. So I think to take something with you know, incredible cultural capital in the English context like Shakespeare, let's not necessarily, let's ask, why does everybody study Shakespeare? Why do we think we need to study Shakespeare? So that kids get that understanding of that cultural capital, but they're, they're learning it from a critical perspective, not just being told, well, this is what happens in Shakespeare, this is what Shakespeare meant. It's actually beginning from a perspective that understands your culture as well. And, understand, and I think you also have to understand other cultures, but I think we could get into a long discussion about the curriculum. But my, your point's a good question. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> other questions, colleagues? I've got a guy at the back. It's also a question I ask myself every time my teacher tells me to think critically. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think. Yeah, yeah. Any, any more, any There's somebody just at the back here, I think. Yeah, I'm just talking as long as we are talking about why do we want to learn Shakespeare? Mm. Uh, if we're Sorry, I should. About Shakespeare or whoever. So the idea is if we are talking about personalizing the experience and then there's no we want to talk about Shakespeare. There's what interests you in yes. Shakespeare, right? So would the education go that far? Would the education system need now to go that far in order to personalize and trigger the interest of the student in the subject? Mm. Not the, you know, general question. Thank you. That's a great question. And there's this gentleman here. Uh, yeah, hi. Yep. Hi. I'm Chris. I am teaching in Brussels and I'm an IB teacher and Montessori teacher and voila. I have a question because um, with all this technology thing and so, um, what I'm wondering about, like one fundamental um, way of learning in humanity is happening when little babies are, let's say, two years old. So they, they learn through experience, right? We call it the terrible tools. Eh? <laughs> it's like, oh my God, and that. But the only thing they do is they explore, right? And they'll learn. And parents get bunkers because uh, you need to do everything, you know, so far. So, and I don't understand why we then, now, even now, we give the tablet to the toddler and say, like, he's very smart, he can work with it, it's awesome. So, wrong. I'm <laughs> profoundly wrong. So, and then I don't understand that why in the future, you mentioned it with uh, the periodic table there, the applied experience and the learning, so far. Why do we take it away? by replacing it with technology, that it's a flat screen or you apply computers and so forth, and do not allow, make the proper hands-on experience because we all agree, we learn through mistakes and making the experience. That's why we say, go take a gap year, take, do, make the experience. I'm beside, go explore, make the experience. But tech in education, we want to take it away and we replace it for 
flat screens and Thank you so much. So we've got two great questions there about pedagogy, actually. Um, so the first question was very much about, is there a curriculum for all? Presumably, does everyone have entitlement to uh, a shared curriculum? Or should the curriculum be completely personalized um, and even left to an individual student's choice? That's one question. And then we have this question about the modes of learning. So um, if I can do uh, curriculum and choice first, who, who would like to answer that? Armin, please. Um, again, nuance to start off with, contextualized. Uh, and I think it goes into your question as well with critical thinking uh, and the question of ethics uh, within the future. Uh, should we, because you can build it, doesn't necessarily mean you should. And I think Einstein would agree with me when it comes to nuclear fusion. Uh, so in that situation, there's, there's certain curriculum content that needs to be addressed by everybody in the classroom. Right? So I'm a modern history teacher. Rights and revolution's a big one. Right? We go through rights and revolution, we talk about how it happens, why it happens, the whole nine yards. That's something that I can do together with my classroom in different ways. The pedagogy changes, depends on what we're doing, what unit, so on. It's always nuanced. Personalization to me has been stolen, uh, basically, for marketing value to now thrust it down to education and say, hey, we can personalize by doing this, this, and this. Personalization takes many different forms. Maybe it's the way that they're gonna showcase their learning. So maybe I'm an excellent writer and I wanna write it out. Maybe Suyang wants to do 3D, a 3D printed model of the, to honor Robespierre during when he was Mr. Incorruptible, not later. Uh, maybe uh, Martin would look at uh, showcasing his learning by doing an oral presentation. So the personalization is not necessarily just the content. You can personalize in many different ways in education. Uh, and, and that's where I think we really need to watch out how we're going to do it. And again, it's in a context. Thank yeah. you so much. Anyone else on um, the personalized curriculum? Martin, no, look, I, so I, again, I, I, I like what Anna has said. And I think that there is, I think there is a core curriculum, but I do think you, you do need opportunities to p personalize and opportunities to say, that really interested me. I want to take it further. And one of the problems with schools is young people will say, oh, I'm so interested in that. Sorry, we've got to move on. There's a test on something else next week. Yeah. Or the next unit of work's coming up. And so those opportunities. So the one, like one of, as a teacher, one of the most exciting... So I was a high school English history teacher. So one of the most exciting moments for me is when a student asked a question. So what happened next? Or how do I find that out? Or, you know, you know like you want to say, go for it. You don't want to say, sorry, we can't do that. You know, so I, I, I think there has to be space within the school, and this is why we need to disrupt that grammar yeah. of schooling, is to provide that space in order to do that, not because we're, we're confined to a timetable, confined to a particular set curriculum. Thank you. So Young was going to come in on yeah. the sure. modes of learning. I think on the, t I mean, actually building on kind of both points, right? So the beauty of technology, right, is like it's a product, like everything else. And what that means is it has a design intention. So when you develop technology, it's not a free-for-all. So I think that um, the challenge has been is that the way that a lot of the e-learning technology has happened in the past has not allowed for that experiential learning experience you're talking about. And, but as, uh, as you know, so when we created you know, our platform, for example, I'm not, I am not a technologist. And I started off as an educator, then I went into business. So I was doing these face-to-face -face experiential workshops, post-its, you know, we do design thinking workshops, leadership, we all talk, you're doing role plays, and I was like, okay, well, let's just use technology to scale that. So that was the design intention, and then the technology is something you just build based on your design intention. So for me, the question for any product you use, whether it's technology, whether it's a paper cup or a table, it's what is the intention of that thing that you're building and then the technology should come to follow that. So for example, one of the first things that we did, and it was an experiment, it was a prototype. I had no idea. Honestly, I was like, do you, I really think that we can help people to do design thinking the same way we do in a physical classroom using this little phone. I'm not so sure, let's test it. So what I did is I said, okay, let's figure out 
this idea of giving them a design challenge, like a product or a project to work on, formed little groups, but then it was kind of self-directed. So I would give them the tasks I would give them in a workshop. And I would say, go find a user. Go do ethnographic research. Go ideate and take a picture of your, of your post-its and upload it into the phone. Mm -hmm. Go do a video of yourself and your reflections, just like you would do in a classroom, and express that in a personalized way. And lo and behold, I had no idea what the outcomes were going to be. And I was actually shocked. I'm like, oh my god, people are actually <laughs> learning. People are actually participating. People are actually coming up with different unique ideas and solutions and feeling more confident and more creative. And that's actually the only reason why we actually, I built this company. There's no reason why other, there's no other reason. You know, it's not about the tech. So I think sometimes we get so caught up in the tech mm -hmm. and it's what is the intention, the purpose behind it. Mm -hmm. And so even when all of you are evaluating technology, Ask, what was the design intention of that mm. technology? What was the root? Was it for tracking purposes? That's there are a really ton of technology, so right? Was designed for tracking. They're awesome at the management part of learning management. Mm -hmm. How many are actually good at learning? Thanks, so young. That's a really powerful intervention. Did you, uh, did you want to add something? Yeah, yeah. So I think like a question to your question is, at what point do you come to realize that learning through technology is not as effective or productive as learning spatially in the traditional method. What we've come to believe is that everything that comes from technology is good or better than what we had before. We've come to accept that. And so we're constantly forcing it into lifestyles. And uh, like you gave the example of toddlers using tablets, but then we're also complaining about toddlers using their creativity and their, you know, their, their independence because they're, they're young, they don't have that accountability. Um, so, so there's that. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's that hypocrisy. So what we're, what technology's sort of done is it's made learning really discrete in some ways. Some of the methods that, that, that we use in e-learning are, are quite discrete. You're not able to have that continuous personalized experience. Uh, the ex yeah. No, but that's, it shouldn't be the case. Yeah. And so that's where it used to be that way mm -hmm. because the design intention was not designed specifically for that. But technology can do it. We probably, if we hold that thought, mm -hmm. have time for just a couple yeah. of very final questions. I know there were a couple of hands. We've got this gentleman here. I think there was somebody over there before. Yes, this gentleman here too. Uh, if you can keep the question really short and the answers really short, we'll finish in time. So please. Hi there, I'm Francois from South Africa. My understanding is that the fourth industrial revolution doesn't equal technology on its own. There are far more aspects. So the question that I'm asking, and I thought we were going to attend to really is, with the fourth industrial revolution, are our schools still relevant mm. when the job market is going to change so fundamentally? Mm. That's my Thank question. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. My name is Matanz Mamueli. I, I just want to uh, comment by saying that uh, we shouldn't just forget that uh, real source of teaching and learning. And the second issue is that uh, I fully agree with the view that says the 21st century are actually the first century, the first century skills, because the evolution of education is essentially about knowledge, skills, uh, attitude, and values. And we shouldn't emphasize skills at the expense of the others. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So that's perfect. So we just have um, a couple of minutes to focus on the question about broadening out the discussion to uh, the future world of work. I think so young, actually, you've, you've, colleagues have uh, touched on this already. Um, but what is the role of education then in what could be uh, a very different uh, workplace? So yeah. Um, I think that the integrated and looking at education from a systems level, and I think one of the things I think would be very powerful and maybe powerful opportunity that I know some educators are already doing is looking across how do you actually bring in kind of the classroom, the school experience outside the classroom, and the world experience into the classroom, right, into a multidisciplinary way so that learning is not just about kind of, I don't know, whatever time, 7 to 2 p.m. or 9 to 5, whatever it is, but it's really a lifelong learning. And how do you actually make that a habit and just a way of life? And so I think there are many ways to evolve schools. So I think schools are super critical depending on how you define what school is. You know, the school of life. How do we actually make it a school of life? 
and you're just going from period to period to period, and you know, with longer uh, lifespans, when you're 50, 60, how do you relearn again? And how, when you're 70, do you relearn again, right? Thank you so young. Shizelle wants to come up. Yeah, uh, I just think that we could go back to the very first point that we all made was that we need to disrupt the school system. We need to break out of that timetabled, curriculum-based, phased-out learning. And we were talking about how students, when they when they're so invested in the subject that you're teaching them, they start asking questions that go beyond what your curriculum requires you, but then we limit them there because we need to move on. I think that system, that, that, that pattern needs to be broken, that trend needs to be broken for those skills to come in because we're working on a schedule and we need to finish it up so that you can sit for your exams at the end. So if we, if we phase out learning rather than just keep it, like you need to finish this, you need to finish this, move on, that's the content, that's how we're gonna get those skills in. So, a much more like flexible learning, yeah. That's thank you, Shazir. That's all we've got time for, everyone. <laughs> that's been an incredibly stimulating discussion, and I'm sure that there is lots of further discussing that we will do over our celebrations this evening, hopefully, and hopefully grabbing each other for conversation. But let's turn and thank our brilliant panel. Thank you.